Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to the New Books in History podcast, part of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Christopher Dinitz, and today we are talking to Tibor Marti. Good morning, Tibor. How are you today? Good morning. Thank you very much for the invitation. My pleasure. Uh, Tibor Marti is the author of Eagles Looking East and West, Dynasty, Ritual, and Representation in Habsburg, Hungary, and Spain. Uh, it is published by Brepos. It comes from a conference in 2016 about representations of power and sovereignty in the Kingdom of Hungary and the Spanish monarchy in the 16th to 18th centuries. Tibor Marti is a research fellow in the Eastern Modern History Department at the Institute of History, part of the Research Center for the Humanities in the Hungarian Academy of Science in Budapest, and he is a lecturer at the Pazmine Peter Catholic University in the Faculty of Philosophy and also the Faculty of the Humanities. He's the author of dozens of publications, articles, and papers in English, Spanish, German, and Hungarian, and I'll put a link to them, all available to our readers to download as PDFs from academia.com and on a variety of early modern topics, including Habsburg diplomacy between Spain and Austria and Hungary and Eastern borderlands contested by European monarchies and the Ottoman Empire, topics which I am interested in as well, which is why it's no accident that I had the pleasure of meeting Tibor when we were both working in the archive of Simancas in Spain uh, near Valladolid some years ago, I think is the January of 2014. So eight years ago, though it feels like eight weeks. Uh, (laughs) Tibor Marti, welcome to the New Books in History podcast, and thank you for talking with me today. Christoph, thank you so much for your invitation. Um, It's really a huge uh, honor for me. So uh, please tell us about your research area, what do you do, and how this volume came about. Well, I'm, I'm a research fellow uh, in, the, in the Institute of History of the Research Center for the Humanities. And I, I have, basically, I have two main research fields, uh, the political elite of the Kingdom of Hungary in the 17th century, um, mainly the careers of, uh, of the most important uh, uh, high noble families, the Esterhazis and Botyanis, and the uh, other hand, the international relations of the Kingdom of Hungary in the early modern period, the development of Hungarian-Habsburg relations in the 17th century, with a special reference to the Spanish Habsburgs. The book is, is the result of a valuable cooperation with, with Berepor's publisher. And, and the, the project uh, that resulted in this book was originally a conference in Budapest, as he told, in April 2016, together with uh, with Roberto Quiros Rosado, he's a research fellow of the Autonomous University of Madrid, we organized an international conference, um, and then, of of course, research on symbolic communication, representation of power, as well as the rule of ceremonies and rituals, has been a very important field of historical investigation for the last few decades. And then our aim was to create an opportunity basically for Hungarian and Spanish colleagues to to share acknowledgements and new research results about the so far neglected aspect of the field of dynastical representation. And uh, tell us why you think it is important and interesting to study the representation of sovereignty 
in the early modern period, and, and in general to study the history of Hungarian and Spanish relations? I think historical research um, on representation of sovereignty in the early modern period has produced significant new results in the cases of both Spain and Hungary, which have not yet been made available to an Anglophone public. I guess research into the manifestation of sovereignty representations, for example, uh, royal coronations, burials, or diverse events that took place in the court can be made fruitful only through international cooperation. This is especially true of research into the representation of power where the House of Habsburg is concerned, consisting as it did of two coeval branches of the same dynasty. Even more things point towards the fact that beyond symbolism and representation, the early modern Hungarian kingdom's natural, military, economic, and intellectual resources played a significantly more important part in the Habsburgs' overall influence in 16th, 17th century Europe and in their political strategy making than previously so. With the book, we seek to stimulate research into Spanish-Hungarian relations. I can see how it will. There are very many, very many topics exactly on on this subject. Can you tell us what are the topics covered in these studies uh, by the by the various authors? Yes, the the papers explore two topics in two thematic units in the book. In the section, the ritualized dynasty, the ceremonies of the Habsburgs, there are papers focusing on the representation of power in connection with the coronation and burial of monarchs and the chivalric tournaments. Then, in the second section, uh, the title One Dynasty, Two Branches, Political Interaction and Self-Representation Between the Eastern and Western Habsburgs. So, the, the relationship between the rulers of the two Habsburg branches the works of, of prominent 17th century political thinkers like uh, Saavedra Fajardo and the symbols and members of the Order of the Golden Fleece are used to present the relations between the two branches of the dynasty and uh, within this, the place and position of the Kingdom of Hungary. Mm, the book also presents several little studied aspects of dynastic representation I just would like to highlight uh, in some of the papers. Geza Palfi, head of the Holy Crown Research Group, presents the forms of heraldic representation during coronations and royal burials through the use of heraldic flags and coats of arms. The writing, uh, the paper of Alfredo Floristani Miskos, is, is also a significant new summary uh, about... Uh, uh, the rituals uh, of the reign and rulers of the kingdoms and provinces of the Iberian Peninsula. Um, um, our aim was um, to organize um, the conference and also um, it was an important uh, goal. Um, I mean, um, the editors, we had an important aim to, uh, to represent um, 
I, I we wanted a, a point of present a point interdisciplinary point of view wanted, uh, and uh, it's it was very important for us to um, invite art historian to uh, um, in in for the conference. I think that's a very good point. Often we can see more in paintings of kings and aristocrats and what is important than we can in in what is written. And I certainly feel that way about Spanish monarchs. My own work is on, on Spain, Spain and Poland, and so we have a lot in common. And, and often you can see a lot in what is included or not included in in, in a artistic artistic representation. Well, the, the painting on the cover of the book depicts the meeting of two cousins, the Cardinal Infant Ferdinand, the brother of Philip IV, King of Spain, and the Queen Marianne of Hungary. Uh, and then Ferdinand III, before the Battle of Nordlingen. The victory of the Habsburg troops marked the milestone in the Thirty Years' War in 1634, and also provided an opportunity to depict the alliance, interdependence, and cooperation between the two branches. Various artistic disciplines have produced works of art that have been linked to this theme and have expressed the de or depicted the relationship between the two branches of the dynasty. The book contains a separate analysis of this image, uh, Ruben González Cuerva's uh, paper. The personal meeting of the prominent members of the two branches was of symbolic importance and even provided an opportunity for the propaganda apparatus of both branches to depict the relationship between the two in different ways. And it's a, is it amazing? Is it so shocking that they worked so well together for so many years, for centuries, really? Because you would think that they would quickly quarrel and fall out, but perhaps they were surrounded by so many common enemies that the that the two heads of the eagle to uh, stay together. Well, uh, this uh, relationship between the two uh, branches uh, of the House Habsburg, um, it, it was it, in the period of the Conde Duke Olivares, it, it uh, received a special, a particular importance. Um, and then um, in the center of his uh, politics, so not not only with the with marriages between the two branches, but also in especially in the first half of the Thirty Years' War, uh, it was a very important uh, financial alliance. And so, with without the help of the Spanish branch uh, of the dynasty, um, it's uh, it it was really really important in the first half of the seventeenth century. So your um, your paper here is about the order of the Golden Fleece, uh, which is a, a really interesting tradition, uh, and I wonder if you would like to talk talk about that. Yes, um, the order of the Golden Fleece is is one of the oldest, most prestigious, and most exclusive chivalric orders. Um, it, in the 16th and 17th centuries, 
until the war of the Spanish succession, it was conferred by the kings of the Spanish branch of the Habsburg dynasty. The order is an honor usually bestowed on Catholic members of the distinguished aristocratic families in recognition of faithful service rendered over the course of generations. And so becoming a member of this order implied an oath of fidelity to the Habsburg dynasty. And then in, in the 17th century, the order was conferred on a total of five Hungarian noblemen. And I, I did research about uh, the background of, of these concessions. For each of these five statesmen, loyalty to the Habsburg dynasty was surely the decisive factor behind this conferral of knighthood, but their individual relationships with the ambassadors represented the cases, uh, it was almost equally important. So I, I would like to highlight that the mediating rule of the ambassadors was important. In the first half of the 17th century, Central European members were awarded the Order of the Golden Fleece, mainly because they served and promoted the interests of the Spanish Habsburgs or the dynasty as a whole in a specific political matter. I will give just an example. Uh, Miklos, uh, Esterházy, uh, Palatine of Hungary, between 1625 until his death, 1645, uh, he was the head of the Hungarian nobility. And, and by the occasion uh, of, of the Hungarian Diet in 1625, achieved the election of Archduke Ferdinand Ernst, the future Ferdinand III, the emperor, as king of Hungary by the Hungarian nobility. And then after the diet, the Spanish ambassador, Count of Oñate, um, transmitted um, well, the, um, the important rule of, of, of the Esterházy, and then uh, Philip IV, uh, king of Spain, uh, decided to concess uh, the, the order of the Golden Fleece to the Hungarian Palatine. But I, I could also mention uh, Zdenko Lopkowitz Popper, uh, the Chancellor of Bohemia, and the same period, uh, it was conferred the Order of the Golden Fleece to him too, uh, because he, um, he, he served in a specific uh, way and the, in, the Spanish political interests in, in Bohemia. I was, uh, I was delighted by this chapter, and especially where you show us your original sources from, from the National Archive uh, in, in Budapest. And one of the things you have here is a charter, a charter uh, of, the, of an initiation of a member to the Golden Fleece. And I was uh, surprised to find it. it was in French. And then I thought, well, why would you know Sp Spanish agents in Hungary write in French when they should be writing in Latin? I would think. But then I thought, no, the order goes back to Burgundy when the House of Habsburg was a little house 
and did not possess Austria and Hungary and Spain and Naples and the New World and everything else. They were a little house in, in Burgundy speaking French and dreaming of a crusade against the Ottoman Empire. Uh, and that, 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 that golden thread, I think, of this, of this interesting order connects the, the different crowned heads of, of Catholic Europe at, at this time. And, um, and you really illustrate that with, with your examples. Well, thank, thank you so much. Uh, well, um, it's really interesting that uh, until the war of Spanish succession, so until uh, the end of the 17th century, uh, the head of the Order of the Golden Fleece were the kings of, of Spain, the Catholic kings. And then... Um, well, the origins of the order, uh, as we know well, um, is is from Burgundy, from the 15th century, and then uh, also the treasury of the order uh, during a long time uh, was in in Brussels. So uh, it's it's really amazing that. Uh, um, so it it well the the most uh, uh, prestigious uh, part of the European aristocracy uh, was con- were conferred them uh, the Order of the Golden Fleece, and then uh, the the French language uh, it's there is nothing to surprise that. Uh, is um, it it it's 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 like the the kings of Spain follow the tradition of the the Burgund, uh, tradition of the order. So it's this this tradition of uh, of crusading orders we see in every country, and this, the ancestor the Habsburg ancestor I think is Charles the Good uh, in the fifteenth century started it in Burgundy, and he was not alone because the English had their um, uh, order of uh, of the Garter, the Garter, and the French had the order of Saint-Michel. But unlike, yes. unlike these Westerners, Hungarians actually had a frontier with the Ottoman Empire and probably had the opportunity for sort of crusade skirmishes if not wars all the time did did that was that a real thing did the did the did the order participate in in the eastern frontier of of Europe or is it symbolic and and political and a way to get uh, promotion and not much else so thank you very much for your question um well in the in medieval period we know that the king of hungary <clears throat> andrew the the second uh, in the in the 20th century um uh, and in, in 12 uh, 20 30 uh, he had a very important rule and he guided uh, crusades uh, to the holy land but uh, in the med- in the medieval period so in the early modern uh, period uh, after the battle of uh, of of mohach in uh, 1526 um, uh, you were right 
that uh, in Hungary um, during the 16th and 17th century um, um, had uh, was divided into three parts following the Ottoman conquest in Central Europe and then uh, the specific the order of the Golden Fleece uh, the members it uh, it was a, a uh, and the privilege of the House Habsburg. Uh, it, it, the order uh, was different from the uh, other um, military um, orders. Uh, so um, it's it's also very interesting that at the same time uh, the Spanish military orders like Calatrava, Santiago, Montesa. Uh, this order also they had Central European members, but uh, um, the the specification that it makes different the order of the Golden Fleece is that uh, that um, this, the monarch, so the head of the, the the Spanish branch of the Habsburgs, he he was uh, so the the sovereign. Of the order, and uh, he he also he, only he had the, the the law to to confer the order, and then when somebody was admitted in the order of the Golden Fleece, it uh, meant that uh, this person belonged to a uh, to a circle to a circle. Uh, near to the mm, to the dynasty. Yeah, and and one thing you show is that um, hung, Hungarian nobles were ready to pay some real money for the privilege of joining this, and and you show how uh, agents on their behalf would help promote their names, um, and you you have a detailed list of expenses connecting to to gain to gain that uh, honor which um is so uh open uh, open and honest about how pat- patronage uh works in you know royal sponsorship of of a of a young uh of a young noble or a young or a new line yes the the mediating rule of the ambassadors the spanish ambassadors and i mean it it was very important and and then not only the ambassadors, but sometimes uh, also the confessors of the emperors, and they had an, a mediation rule. Um, and, well, it's very interesting uh, that uh, in, the, in the case of <clears throat> Paul Esterhazy, his father also uh, was member of the Order of the Golden Fleece, and the son, Paul, also Palatine of, of Hungary, uh, he wanted to achieve the career of his father. And then, um, but in the first half of the 17th century, uh, only uh, was possible uh, to be member of the order if, if, if somebody uh, did some special for some some special uh, issue 
in, uh, following the interests of the Spanish branch um, or the world dynasty to uh, to achieve the order. So I, I mean, there is a difference between the members who, who were who became members of the order in the first half of the 17th century and after in the in the second half of the 17th century it, it um, we can see examples when when some nobles they they made a special effort uh, they uh, for for to achieve the the membership so is there a limit on how many members there can be in the order like 24 or something like that or can they give this honor as many times as they want no uh, so in i mean in the 17th century uh, Czech colleague Pavel Marek uh, uh, he writes in in his book he has a, a monograph about the the Spanish embassy in the imperial court of Vienna and then in the 1620 uh, it was it was limited the number uh, of the members of the order of the golden fleece and uh, it it if if i'm not wrong so uh, about 20 25 people so it it was limited and in the case of Mikro Esterházy uh, so the diet, when he had an important rule, achieve uh, that uh, the Hungarian nobility um, to elect uh, the Archduke Ferdinand Ernst uh, as king of Hungary. It was in 1625, and three years after, so in 1628, um, when when they uh, they received. Uh, so the insignias of the order, because somebody of the members, uh, Karl Harrach, uh, died, and after uh, it it uh, it had been possible to 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 be member of the order. It's, I, it's I very... yeah, I think that's very important because that that scarcity, you know, that there's not that many. So you have if you give it to one. One aristocrat, you cannot give it to another one at the same time. And I think that makes it extremely valuable. Whereas, you know, I don't know, somebody like the Queen of England can give out as many knighthoods as she wishes. Uh, they don't seem the, they don't seem the, the same. You, you mentioned um, Paul Esterhazy. I'm not a specialist on, on Hungary at all. Uh, it's something I know about just a little bit from studying the period. But if there's one name, one Hungarian name that, you know, that outsiders would know, it's Esterhazy. And I, I remember going to um, the, the palace when I was a student in, in uh, 20, over 20 years ago uh, in Eisenstadt in Austria to see, you know, the palace, the, the Schloss Esterhazy, where... Um, Haydn used to play, and I thought, like, what you, you know, the splendor of this family. But you take us back a couple hundred years to when they were really not not that important, not that important. You call them a, a, a novus a homo, or a, you know, a, a new man, an upstart. Uh, uh, and so clearly, this patronage did a lot for him. Or is it more? I'm sure it's more than this, but it's wonderful to see a great family start off as a small family and and ascend with, with this kind of network. 
So uh, the, the Kingdom of Hungary uh, had a, a, a particular situation during the 16th and 17th centuries because it was divided into three parts following the Ottoman conquest on Central Europe. And um, uh, after that, uh, in 1541, the capital of the Kingdom, Buda, uh, fell into Ottoman hands. Uh, the central part of the country became Ottoman Hungary. The Principality of Transylvania was subject to Ottoman rule with a degree of autonomy, and the remaining western and northern parts of the kingdom were ruled by the Habsburg monarch, elected king by the Hungarian nobility and crowned at the Hungarian diets. And it's important to highlight that uh, the Hungarian nobility uh, had this, this uh, privilege to elect the king. Uh, Hungary was not a hereditary um, territory of the Habsburgs. And then thus the kingdom of Hungary was part of the composite Habsburg monarchy with the Hungarian kings being members of the Austrian branch of the dynasty. Uh, since the medieval capital of the kingdom had been conquered by the Ottomans, the Hungarian royal court was relocated abroad. In Geza Palfwi's words, the Hungarian royal court continued to live virtually in the imperial court in Vienna. This meant that from time to time, for example, during coronation ceremonies, the dignitaries of the Hungarian royal court would bring the royal court to life in the course of the ceremony. And then... Uh, to say some words about um, the Esterhazy family. Um, for me, uh, personally, it was very interesting to do a research work about the relation between the Order of the Golden Fleece and the Hungarian noble families, because I, I, um, I, I could find some specific uh, sources, uh, like the diary of... Um, of um, the, one of the officers of the order, uh, um, the Roy Roy de Arm is is one of the four uh, important officers of the Order of the Golden Flies, and then uh, he was a officer of the order in the first half of the 17th century, and uh, Professor Bernardo Garcia drew my attention uh, to his diary. Jean Hervart uh, was his name. And then when 1628, Miklos Esterházy was conferred to him the Order of the Golden Fleece. So the, the ceremony when he received the insignias of the order by the uh, hand of Ferdinand II, by the emperor, uh, so this John Herwart uh, attended in in Vienna, and then we I, I can I could um, find some special details about the ceremony, and uh, it's um, well the example of the Esterházy family. Uh, the Esterházys originally uh, didn't belong to the most, uh, uh, had not belonged to the most, the, the oldest uh, families of in the Kingdom of Hungary. Uh, Miklós Esterházy was 
uh, well, and Homo Novus, uh, he had a, a big, big talent to, he was, uh, he, he 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 converted uh, Catholic and and uh, um, very first of the 17th century, and then uh, he got married uh, two times uh, with Orshoya Dershvi firstly, and then Christina Nyari, and then uh, in 1626 when uh, Ferdinand II. Uh, gave him the castle of Fortenstein today in in uh, Austria, and then Comes uh, Perpetuos is is from from Fortenstein is is the main title of of the family, but originally the prename was Galanta. Galanta is, is today in Slovakia. And so the family of Esterházy, the, the father of Miklos, was, um, well, they, they had um, a political rule um, only in the province of, of Pozoň, Bratislava, and then in, in the province of, of Pozoň. So his son, Miklos, uh, could... Uh, achieve uh, dignitaries and, and high uh, offices in the kingdom. Yes. And and then, yes. What it, you said he converted. Was he a, was he a Lutheran? So his family uh, originally was a Lutheran family as the main, as the, the, so in the second half of the 16th century and also until um, and well, in 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 also the the a lot of fam- families of the Hungarian nobility they were Protestant. Ah, um, another name I learned from your from your work is of course the um, Archbishop uh, Peter Hasmein, which I had not known, but I realized that is exactly the institution where you studied and where you now work. Uh, so a lot of people became big names in this moment. Oh uh, yeah, you are very, yes. Uh, I, I just a correction. So actually, I do not work at the Catholic University. Um, I I, um, I do research work in the Institute of History, and, and that is just a correction. Well, uh, Peter Pazman uh, he had a, a huge uh, role uh, in the conversion of of the Hungarian aristocracy, and then. Uh, oh, well, the the two most important uh, uh, dignitaries of the Kingdom of Hungary was in for the, the head of the secular elite was the Palatine, Miklós Esterházy, and in in from sixteen sixteen until his death sixteen thirty seven, the Archbishop of Esztergom uh, was Peter Pazmány. Uh, and the most important uh, theologian, and then uh, he he was the, the the most important person who uh, 
um, who founded the university in 1635 uh, in in Turnava, uh, and then uh, um, an extraordinary scholar, uh, Peter Pazman, uh, is he he cr was created cardinal in 1629. Also, in, uh, he was ambassador of Ferdinand II in thirty in sixteen thirty two, when he he uh, as ambassador of Ferdinand II, uh, he went to uh, to Rome. Uh, um, so Peter Pazman uh, was the I I think in the early modern period the most important ecclesiastical figure. Um, of the history of Hungary. Thank you. Uh, I want to share a funny story before I, I move on, which I found a hundred years earlier in the court of Charles V. Uh, the fellow I study, who is a Polish ambassador there, had been given a place in a royal procession and he had to hold a candle and the, the king or the king's man the emperor's man told him, you know, because your king, Sigismund I of Poland, was a member of the Order of the Golden Fleece. But it was the first it was the first time that our ambassador, uh, his name was Dantiscus, had heard of this. So there had been a, a some kind of accident where they had conferred the status of, of, of the Golden Fleece to the Polish king, but the Polish king never found out. So they had gone through all the effort to award him this, this great honor, but they had clumsily... They had bungled it. And so no one in Poland knew that the king was in the order. And it was an embarrassment for everyone. It, this is, I think, 1526, 1523, something like that. Um, and so it, they were using this for a political advantage, but they had also messed up the the, the delivery of it. So um, this has been going on for 100, 100 years, The you know, tr using the, the membership to, to forge alliance and friendship between kings, the, the fraterni sui amoris. I see. Uh, yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. Um, okay, so let's say they, uh, uh, the Habsburgs rise in the 16th century, but unfortunately in 1800, poor Charles II, king of Spain, does not have any children. Uh, and so there's a war of Spanish succession and a French dynasty, the Bourbons, Borbones, take over Spain. Does the relationship end between Spain uh, and Hungary and Vienna with the change in, in dynasty in the in eighteen hundred and the nineteenth century? Um, well, uh, very interesting is this period when uh, Charles the the sixth or or as king of Hungary, Charles the the third um, had became uh, king. Uh, so the order of the Golden Fleece separated two branches uh, after the war of the Spanish succession. And then uh, that's very interesting that uh, the, the Bourbon monarchs, they, uh, they conferred the order uh, and they tried to, well, <laughs> and they, they continued uh, to confer they continued the concessions of the order, but uh, the the Habsburg dynasty uh, also today 
in our days uh, exists to two orders of the Golden Fleece. Uh, in the 18th century, uh, when I'm not wrong, Francis uh, II, Rakotsi, was one of the very first persons uh, to whom it was conferred the Order of the Golden Fleece uh, um, by the King of Spain, the first Bourbon King in, of Spain. Um, well, um, I, I, I can tell you that in the framework of our research project, uh, I, I could find description about the Hungarian coronations um, until the end of the 17th century. So, uh, of course, uh, um, in the 18th century, for example, they, the ambassadors of, of the Bourbon uh, uh, kings, they didn't attend at the coronations of the Hungarian monarchs. So those are all the questions I, I have uh, prepared. Are there any other things we should say about this book? And also, what is your next project and what are you planning to do next? And... It was a, a, a very positive experience for me. So it was my first book and I received valuable help from many people at different stages of my of the work on the book. Um, I have learned a lot from the communication with the publisher uh, during the whole process. And I am especially grateful to Violet Soon, the editor of the Brepos Habsburg World Series, contributed uh, um, she with her professional and continuous attention, um, and for example, with several important comments and suggestions on the introduction to make this project the best it could be. Uh, so um, it's it's really uh, for me it it came through a dream, <laughs> and we are really pleased uh, that that uh, it has been uh, implemented. The next uh, project, um, in, together with uh, with Professor Geza Pafi, we continue publishing the the sources uh, from the Spanish archives. Uh, related with uh, with the history of Hungary, and I can say related with the history of Central Europe, um, and then um, I'm very glad to to that we we are going to continue the cooperation with uh, um, with the Professor Antonio Alvarez Osorio Alvarino, with with Roberto Quiroz Rosado. We are going to organize. And another conference in Madrid in October next year, uh, when we uh, we will we are going to present the book in Madrid too, um, and also uh, I I I I'm very happy that uh, with 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 lot of uh, Spanish colleagues and also um, Czech colleagues. I, I can work together. It's really a very positive experience for me that uh, during my my whole professional career, 
I I get a lot of help from for many from many many colleagues uh, from all over the world. That is very yeah. exciting, and I think on behalf of people all over the world, we we are very happy you're doing this work of a specialist and teaching us about this part of the world at this transformative time. Uh, and and bringing it to to us everywhere. And thank you very much, Tibor Marti, for participating in the New Books in History podcast, which in this digital republic of letters gets your voice to every corner of the world. And thank you for your time today. Thank you. Thank you very much for your invitation and patience. (laughs) Thank you so much. (laughs) The pleasure is mine. Thank you so much. Thank you.